Washed up actor, legendary uh, voice actor. I think, yeah, he just does voice stuff most of the time. That's what washed up actors do. Oh, <laughs> well, he did it like he, did, he started doing that immediately, though. He was in like, stop, like, stop, like, adding logic to my like, like, shitty joke. <laughs> it was a shitty joke, though. That's exactly. why. Well, I, yeah. don't, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> that's that's fine. That's fine okay. by me. <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't just, appreciate it. I'm just letting you know. The best things in life are the things they thrust upon you that are unappreciated. Like a like a movie we're gonna do. That's part of waking up. It's folders in your cup. He <laughs> He kinda like I feel like he knew from the beginning. He's like, shit, I'm never gonna be anyone but Luke, am I? Fuck it. I'm gonna carve out my career this way. I see him more as the Joker than anyone. Yeah, voice, right? Yeah, like the, when the, I hear his, his voice, voice and shit. Like Yeah. Like that was his best work. Yeah, he's a really great voice actor for sure. Not doing cocaine and uh, pretending to be a Jedi, <laughs> like Carrie Fisher. Like <laughs> Just fucking and doing cocaine. What are we, are we space wizards? We go. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that sounds like a phenomenal lifestyle. It sounds awesome. I would yeah. love to go back and do that. I, I love. I mean, I don't love it, but when she passed, I remember like the reaction <laughs> was like. The reaction was like. Oh yeah, she did a lot of coke back in the seventies and eighties. Dude, did you it hear wasn't the way even she like talked. Oh, Her God. nose was like a fucking Michelin blimp. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Her nose was like a blown out fucking bag vacuum. Just like <laughs> she talked as if she had she snorted all the world's marbles. Seriously, <laughs> all that tea oh, in China. Poor Gary Fisher. <laughs> she was fucking hilarious. No, yeah, she, she was, was great. No, oh my God, yeah. are you kidding me? She was fucking great. It's just like cocaine's a hell crazy. of a drug. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Does a number. Indeed. Does a number on your sniffer. Who's that fucking actor whose nose is all fucked up? Or not actor, comedian or something like that. Uh, John Mulaney? Not John Mulaney. No, his nose is all fucked <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. John Jim Belushi. Is Artie Lang? I think it's Artie Lang. Oh, Artie Lang did a yeah. fuck ton. Of I think coke. his nose is all fucked up from like doing too much coke. Yeah, that makes complete sense. That's very unfortunate. I read his book "Too Too Fat to Fish." Um, I would read it periodically when I would go to my friend's house and take a dump. Like it was just the book that was in the bathroom. <laughs> so I'd read like a few chapters here. <laughs> Next week I'd come back read a few chapters there. It's a, it's a crazy life, man. I couldn't shit at my own house. Yeah, I, I just know. went to his house and shit. <laughs> hey, Mike, can I come I over here and shit real quick? I sat on the toilet and read chapters. <laughs> See, that's the thing is, I did that. I was one. I was really late to the game using my phone on the toilet. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I really adamantly refused for a long time. <clears throat> like Skyler was already using his phone like while pissing. <laughs> like by the Damn. time I started using it to like when I was on the toilet. Because I just read. I just always had a book on the the top of the toilet that I was reading. That was like my toilet book. It was usually mm-hmm. short, like short stories or like a poems. 
poems is perfect because yeah. then it's it's just I mean I don't even have to explain it. It's perfect. Yeah, I'd read like Amy Amy Hempel like short stories that are like you know a page long. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you know. I'm just kidding. That poem's fucking humongous. <laughs> That's a laughing. I read it uh, every time I go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh but then yeah, I started using my phone and then it was game over from there. I think that's a big turning point in like phone use because then you start finding it acceptable to use it like everywhere. Yeah. Can I ask you guys something about phone use? So like in movie theaters, I love it when people oh, use God. them in movie theaters. As millennials, I feel like I got we got pegged a lot for like like oh my god you guys are always on your phones you're always like just doing your thing but now dude when i go out in public it's the boomers who are stuck onto their phones they like play bejeweled and shit like non-stop i'm gonna be gonna key you in on that. i'm not huge on like generational shit i'm like mm. humans are fucking stupid from like from the jump <laughs> and so like it doesn't matter like what year you were born in you're just yeah. stupid in that generation Mm. And so I'm not really into like boomers and Gen Z. Like everyone's just an idiot and just exists and idiot, <laughs> an idiot land. Okay, boomer. And, and so like yeah, like I see just people. Like I see everybody. Just everybody's on their phone. Like doesn't yeah. matter. Like the, I see nine year olds on their phone. I see ninety year olds on their phone. Everyone's on their mm-hmm. fucking phone. It's just nine year olds being on. I mean, it is a sign that it's so ubiquitous when like the homeless or like street vagrants well, assen- they made it essential right to like, exist yeah <laughs> that's the part that's the difference is like when you make something essential to live then it doesn't matter like it becomes like food like you need a cell phone now like it's not a oh i don't really i don't have a cell phone it's like what the fuck do you live on mars like oh you know like, it's just that's how it is nobody has home phones anymore <laughs> i know if you do, it's tied into like your old internet package. Yeah, yeah. package that you have. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Anywhoozle. Speaking of more food, I want more pancakes. Want more pancakes. Mocha pa- panakeku. Mota panakeku. There should be more blood. <laughs> Mota panakeku. <laughs> Height. <laughs> oh shit. Respect. <laughs> I like the respect. I got the frozen banana thing now. By the way, Jesse. From oh, when you, you called get back that? for it at the beginning of the episode last time. <laughs> oh, it's such an incredible moment. <laughs> it's such a like it's such a good scene because like you Jeff know, and like, I were dying laughing. Yeah, I know. We'll save it because like <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's a scene. It's a scene where you know he's putting like a hundred percent of his acting acting chops into filleting a banana, sucking on a banana. <laughs> Oh boy, you want to get it started, Bun Boys? Glorious reaction let's, let's, shots. Let's get it started. There will be blood. I mean, you know. is that the next All one? All right. Yeah. Right, go ahead and start up. And we're back. Real Weirdos, Paul Thomas Anderson, Part Two. Last time we did uh, the first four films uh, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Trunk Love, Jeff's personal favorite, starring Adam <sighs> Sandler. No. Oh, I thought I thought I'd get a reaction out of him. You right did. There. I just I, I scoffed. Oh. <laughs> that's all you're gonna get out of me. Shit. That's all. That's all. Um, and today we're going into a big, a big meaty segment here for the part two. Oh yeah. Starting with, <clears throat> there will be blood from 2007. Now this is I I can say without any reservation, I think one of the greatest films ever made. Oh, featuring. Easily. 
featuring perhaps the single greatest performance in cinematic history. We can talk about that. But it's the story about the rise of an oil man in the early 20th century, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, but functions more so as a bleak, almost gothic piece of Americana. It's a very psychological movie centered on this character, Daniel Plainview, who is, like, let's not beat around the bush here. He's a violent sociopath. Uh, tracks his strained relationship with his son, who is deafened when one of the oil derricks bursts, as well as a continual interplay with a young priest by Paul Dano and other characters. Um, oh yeah, and before we jump into it, on a real weirdo's note, I think this is kind of interesting. This movie is actually a good part of the reason why Alex is on the podcast. <laughs> um, besides being like a thoughtful and prolific movie watcher boy... <laughs> he also shared with me a paper he wrote about this movie when we were at UC Berkeley. So when it came time for the podcast, I was like, this is this is the guy. <laughs> and Jeff, Jeff, I, I might as well say why Jeff's here, too. He's also here because he's a, a good movie boy, obviously. But he's mostly here because some of the greatest cinematic experiences in my life have been making him watch things that he hates. It, it imbues me with life and love and laughter. Talking about Unfortunately, uh, sociopaths. <laughs> we haven't gotten him into rage mode yet outside of funny games, but don't worry. We'll get there. Uh, yeah, I have, I'm sure that Jesse has something brewing that's going to get me real fired up. I, I hope so. We'll see. I think I'm going to come over and watch it with you. I'm not going to tell you what it is until we watch it. And I'm really looking forward to it because I think we're gonna we're gonna laugh a lot. Oh, Christ, <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> I don't like surprises, and I don't want. I don't like this. Uh, you know, it's like watch. He's gonna make me watch Riccio again. No, I'm <laughs> not like, gonna he's gonna. Do that. But he's, you say that, but it would be the ultimate like long game if you're like no no I would never do that, and then like you would just like all of a sudden it just appears on the screen. No, but I wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> the script has started already the way that Jeff predicted. That's so insane. It just yeah. feels off. Well, it's it's hard to know. Well, Alex knows. I do. But he's not going to verify one way or the other. Oh man. I'm gonna like drive down to LA and <laughs> cut it out of boy. Like tie you up with tape, do a funny games on you. Seriously. What's the movie? <laughs> Oh, shit. Oh, boy. Um, There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a good movie. It's one of the best movies. Oh, easily one of the best movies of all time. One of my all-time favorites. I say that a lot, I know. Um, But that's because we choose the movies that we like, so that makes sense. It might be. We talk about movies we like a lot. One of the best movies of the 20th century, if not, like, the best movie. I, I know a lot of people say that. It's just, like... It came out in 2007, you said? Just yes. It? I just, I don't remember anything hitting me as hard as this movie in this new fledgling century that we're in. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it definitely yeah. has a shout for, like, greatest of all time. But if, at least for the 21st century, I think it's just unparalleled. Well, that yeah, that's easy. Yeah, this movie is perfect. And I say that with no hesitation i don't say that like like oh but it could be you know this movie is perfect everyone acts to their highest level everyone puts in their heart and soul daniel day lewis is probably i mean people always tout lincoln as his most convincing role but i really 
Daniel Plainview is a terrifying individual. He truly, is he's truly terrifying. Fucking horrifying person who doesn't want anyone else to succeed. There's I was thinking about this while I was watching it. And it's like there are a lot of great actors who I really like, but watching him in this after just like we we had watched Phantom Thread the day before, Jeff and I had. And like he has different eyes and mm-hmm. a different soul. Mm-hmm. It is so complete that it's it's just crazy i I, it's it's so it's i don't even know how to describe it it's like he has different eyes yeah no 100 (laughs) percent um no to me he didn't even look like the same person between the two yeah Yeah, go ahead alex yeah what were you saying oh no i was yeah i was just gonna agree he he gets like to the microscopic level of acting right where it's like little ticks or little like I don't know. Like for some reason, Jesse is probably pretty familiar with this guy going through Akira Kurosawa's works, but Mm -hmm. I feel like if there was one actor who could have replaced Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood, which is almost a travesty to say, but it probably could have been Toshiro Mifune. Uh, Mm, He has this glare. Exactly. He has like this glare to his face and like, I always say this, it's like almost animal or like bestial. And in There Will Be Blood, like, he's like a, just an entirely different creature, like different DNA from any of the other roles that Daniel Day-Lewis has played. And yeah, I, it's really cool that you focused on the eyes because that makes perfect sense. No, totally. It's in the scowl. And it's like, I like that you said a different creature. It almost feels like he, he's a predator. Mm-hmm. In this movie, and everything else, everybody else, is fucking gazelle. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, he has this way that he moves through the movie with intent and with purpose, like a predator moves through the grass. You know, it's like it's so calculated every step, every movement. It's like you don't even you think the whole time you feel like one of the people going up against Daniel Plainview, right? <laughs> You get a good sense of his his insane level of determination as well in the in the opening moments where you see him like he built he built a hole in the ground to to try to find oil basically and it goes wrong and he breaks his leg or something but he's basically like crawling you see him crawling and the camera pans up as this beautiful shot and it's just like the distance of wherever he is California Arizona and it's like Motherfucker crawled. We have no idea how far back to town and like didn't go. He didn't go to the doctors. Just went straight to getting the the rocks tested. Yeah. You're like, this man is a beast. Yep. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's such a great metaphor that he, he's so determined that he crawled out of the bowels of the earth to get this. It's almost like he was born to this creature again. He's a miner before, and then this happens, and it's like, no, I will get this gold. Yeah, I will get this empire that I want. It's so penetrative too, in like a sexual way, because he has no like female counterparts in the movie, and he is not driven by romance or lust. It's like his act or his like his like release is literally penetrating the earth and extracting these like minerals for his own benefit and that's what like drives him that's like his lust in the movie i mean there's no women either but 
No, I like that though. That's a really interesting read. I never really thought about it like that. He's like penetrating the earth and extracting something from it. It's such a more of a god complex type thing. That's very interesting. And I think it's important to point out that while he money is a motivation for him, Daniel Plainview is not motivated solely by greed. Exactly. It's so much bigger than that. What do you what do you think he's motivated by? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he says it clearly in the movie. I mean, he very much clearly illustrates his intentions. You know, he says, "I have a there's a sickness about me. I don't want anyone else to succeed. I don't want anyone else to succeed." <laughs> he has a very. I think that there's a part of him that just feels a superior to other people, and I think that he feels like he this is owed to him. And I, mm-hmm. I think that like he feels like this, he's taking what he's owed from the earth, from the place around him. Because we get very little detail about Daniel Plainview, even though there's a whole sequence in which we meet his supposed brother, and you know they have a whole conversation about kind of the old times, and Plainview even fools him into revealing that he's not his brother by tricking him with a little piece of history from his past. So we learn things, but it's all so vague. We really don't know who he is, who his parents were. It is. It, it almost doesn't matter. It's more about the psychological portrait. And do you Ex- see that exactly. exemplified in the filmmaking? And uh, especially when the oil derrick bursts and bursts into flame. And you have this amazing shot where he's just lit by the firelight with the oil on his face with this this inscrutable expression. And it's just like pure evil. Yeah, well, it's it's hellfire. I mean, this this, I mean, we can we easily say that this movie has very religious connotations. Obviously, he's at odds with Paul Dano's character, Paul Sunday, who is kind of a egotistical cult leader. Almost, he he wants to be a evangelist. He's like an early evangelist priest. He's, he's like very, Daniel, like in a sense. Sense. yes, no. It's it's a very much a movie about the two uh, egos clashing. There's not enough room in this place for both of these humans to exist. This is just a... And Paul's character, uh, brother... I forget his name. Eli. Eli is... Knows that. It, Eli is the smartest character. Eli is the hero of the movie to me. Because Eli knows that this is going to cause some kind of destabilization. He knows the type of person his brother is. And he knows the type of person Daniel uh, is because he researched him. Uh-huh. And so I think that this was an intentional ploy to destabilize his brother. I do know the family, or at least Paul, looks down on Eli. You know, when he goes and he beats his dad up, he's like, it was the, it was Eli, you know, like the yeah. the Cain to the Abel type thing. Like, he betrayed us. Um, right, the dad's name is Abel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a weak man, Abel. Exactly. Yep. I mean, well, a weak, I mean, stupid man. I think it's the idea of a time true Christianity and fake Christianity. Exactly. Like, Eli is a true Christian. He comes in, he's quiet, he's calm, he's polite, but he's firm. You know, he follows the tenets of Christ as Christ was, was polite but firm. And like he knows what he wants and he gets it. And then he gives the information like he said he would. He keeps his word. You know, he's a good Christian man, and he want, he knows the type of sycophant that his brother is uh-huh. and wanted away from that. It's an interesting movie as well, speaking on the characters, because 
nobody in this movie is sympathetic, really. Maybe uh, Daniel's son is. Yeah, HW. And, and, yeah, HW. Um, Because you're like, wow, you have to deal with that as a father. And when he's older, that they have an interesting scene together. But, like, a lot of movies, even if it features villains, they're sympathetic to a degree, and that's what makes them good, sort of core of humanity. This movie... I I almost want to say it doesn't have that, but that almost makes it its own realm of interesting because it's so well done where it's like, you're just, you're just simmering in this pool of psychosis of these characters and reveling in the photography and all this stuff. I actually am extremely sympathetic to Daniel Plambu as a character. I hope that doesn't say too much about (laughs) me as a person. Tell us, us. (laughs) but you know, there are, few scenes here and there where you see under the shell or under the armor. Um, not like in the more typical way. So, for instance, his son, H.W., when they first go prospect the land, um, H.W. finds oil. He falls and slips while they're quail hunting, and he finds like a little thing of oil. And him and his father have this moment where they're kind of just talking about it, and the father's like, this is, um, it's called seepage or something. He's like, this earthquake oil rising up from the the rocks and he like pats hw on the back and it's like this really soft and delicate father-son moment shot beautifully by the way since we're talking about the director everything in this movie is shot beautifully yeah, yeah you just gonna... you just take that for granted yeah absolutely the acting outshines the directing you, you unfortunately in this fall movie. over watching it gorgeous yeah um and then you know the moment with his brother especially there's a moment where he uh just before he realizes that he's a fake, right? Exactly. And they're at the beach. Well, there's they're at the beach, and he says, you know, remember the peach, I'd like to go to the peach tree dance. You know, look her up some girls and take him to the peach tree dance. And I think that the, the phrase, lick her up some girls and take to the peach tree dance, is small, but it tells you so much about Daniel as a young man. Like, everyone other man like oh what you do is like if you can't get the girl with your charm or your handsomeness like you liquor him up a little bit you can take him to the peach tree dance and it's like there was a moment where daniel was normal and he was going through the adolescent throes of life trying to figure out like am i a romantic dude like am i supposed to have a woman like what's going on here and he's hurt do you think it's that or do you think that there's like something predatory even there liquor up a girl and take her to a dance that i mean that is also another reading right i just don't see him as the type of like not that kind of predator yeah no no no. i know what you're saying though but like there is yeah. something there if we go with the reading um yeah no that's a that's a good point too but i mean he looks genuinely hurt when he finds out that his supposed brother has violated like this childhood or this like violated the mythology of daniel's past where he's like, yeah. this was my story, and you were supposed to be a part of that story, and you come in and not only conned me, but like, you've made my mythology and my past almost trivial because you don't remember you've it. Violated, yeah, <laughs> it's a violation. But yeah, the 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 point about the son is interesting, and you're you're correct. I think there's a lot of genuine tenderness. It's it's the one chink in his armor. Yeah, and you you do see that you see that throughout all of the the scenes where you have HW as a child. I mean, there are moments when the oil comes first. Yeah. But generally speaking, it is the chink in his armor. 
um, until, I guess, until he grows up and you have the, the end of the film yeah. where he just, he just, <laughs> whether, whether by brute violence towards Paul Dano's character or through the psychological violence with the son, he shuts down everything else and it's just within his fortress of desiccation at this point. Yeah. 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 He very much utilizes HW as a tool. Oh and yeah. To keep a tool like a pick or an oil drill, you have to keep it sharp. And so for a child, you have to show a child love. And so he loves HW in the capacity that he believes is necessary to create a child happy enough to utilize as a tool. Do you do you think because he's that's what he says at the end? He's like, "You're a bastard. There's none of you in me, and like I only took you in because I needed a sweet face for people to buy oil or whatever." Um, I'm a whatever family he says man. There, something to that effect. But yes. but I don't know. I I think at that point there's a lot of just bluster going on because you do see so much genuine sensitivity early on, but. It is a question. It does remain a question because it's like how much of that is premeditated. I I don't know. No, I'm I I, I like the read, but I just I'm sorry. I I don't see Daniel Plainview as that type of person. You're going cynical on this one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't. He's he every movement in this movie, every movement in Daniel Plainview's excuse me, Daniel Plainview's life is executed to perfection it's executed to the finest most refined degree because that's the type of man he is and he can't be any other type of man even when uh trying to accept his brother you can tell there was a struggle there like he was like really wanting to believe it but the whole time there was something in the back of his head that made him question he can't ever trust he can't ever open himself to another person he's totally closed off that's why he's a true to form sociopath because he's unable to open himself up. And so he's just telling the truth at the end of the movie. He's 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 unveiling all his cards to everybody. To Paul, to his son. You're a tool. You're not my son. I don't want you. I never wanted you. I used you. Bye. Right off your money. You're not mine. And then when Paul comes, he's like, seepage. I, I, I... I drink your I milkshake. drink your milkshake. <laughs> I suck the legendary it up. milkshake scene. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I suck it up. Uh, so you know he's being fully honest. He could have told Paul that at any point in his life. He could have wrote Paul a letter and said, "Just let you know this has happened." BT Matter of fact, as a <laughs> as a businessman. Yeah, but he's but he's not that kind of man. He's a vindictive bastard. So for him, <laughs> he waited. He waited. He has that kind of patience. He sat there and waited until the day he knew Paul Sunday was going to come to him for money because he knew he was a fuck up. I think, and he knew, and he waited until that moment to unveil the, the that there was no oil to get the most reaction out of it. I think that there's a, that the second half of the movie he does that specifically like the long con type of game because he is so shamed and defeated when. Okay, so another moment where he looks very vulnerable to me is when Bandy catches him the morning after he murders his brother. And, like, he's staring at him. And Bandy is an interesting 
like paragon or symbol of religion in this movie. He's like also very quiet. He like owns his ranch. He's resistant, you know, to like the change and everything like that. And when he finds Daniel, he's like, Oh, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to turn you in or anything. He's like, I just want you to go and be saved and ask for forgiveness. And it's such a weird moment where like Daniel has like no material economy to negotiate with this man. And he's like, fine, fuck it. And then when he's like, I'll give you $5,000, yeah, exactly. 10,000, he'll do anything except get fucking baptized. I know. But then when Paul does that to, to him, I agree with you, Jeff, from that moment on, it's like, okay, okay, this is how it's going to be. Like, I'll get you in fucking a few decades here. Like, yeah, they have like a back and forth because Paul visits him in the muddy field and he just like slaps oh, him that. around yeah. and shoves him in the fucking slime. <laughs> yeah. And then Paul gets his semi revenge by like humiliating Daniel in front of the, the, uh, the church audience. <laughs> it's just but a boy does egos. Daniel, Daniel gets the last shot yes. when he murders him with a bowling ball. That's a strike. Bowling baby. pin. Bowling pin, yeah. Yeah. That's a strike, baby, (laughs) says Alex. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like, it's just a clash of egos. It's a war of egos. It's a back and forth. You get one, I get one. Now, Paul, I believe, I hate Paul Sunday. Oh, yeah. Like, he's one of my most hated characters in the pantheon of hateable characters. He's pretty loathsome, yeah. And this is credit to Paul Dano's acting ability. I've always thought he was a great actor, and he really proves it here as just encompassing this this disgustingly cheap and just shallow human being that only needs self-satisfaction but i mean i think isn't i think it's it's the sorry the the one the the paul dano character he plays two brothers i think the one that we see the whole time is eli you keep saying paul but i think it's eli because i just in my brain it's like eli Oh, Eli. you're right. Uh, my, my apologies. Daniel Day-Lewis calling him Eli. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, yeah I have it on my I, notes. It, that was the other way. in my brain, just hovering at the periphery. I was like, "Is that right?" So no, no. Sorry, Paul is the brother that originally visits them. Got it. The yes. older brother. Yes, and yeah. Eli. Okay, is you're right. The, yeah. the sycophant. And my apologies. You're right. I have that written wrong in my notes. <laughs> um, I don't know why I got that. Well, I mean, it's because it's the same actor. Yeah, it was an um, easy mistake. Yeah, so just like it's just this ability to really play it calm, play it patiently, and and get your comeuppance at the end. I don't, I don't think Paul, Daniel Day Lewis has any moments of true vulnerability in this movie. I think when he's confronted by Bandy, it's just panic. He's just like, mm. okay, can't, I can't, I can't negotiate. I can't use any. Like Alex is a great read. Alex is he can't. He does nothing to negotiate with. There's no, yeah, he's never sorry. He's never truly sorry about anything. He's only doing things right because he has to do them. Yeah. And, and so it's just, I mean, I don't, he's a beautifully reprehensible character. <laughs> yeah, so Daniel Day-Lewis does the method acting thing. He stays in character, like in Lincoln, you know, offset. People would call him Mr. Lincoln, stuff like that. And I, I every time I see this movie, I must think how crazy it was for him to inhabit this character for months and months and he prepared for it for over a year and not only that but when you're on set and people are calling you by your character's name his character's name in this film is daniel i know that's his real name (laughs) so it's like i i wonder how much of it like how it fucked with his identity 
You know what I mean? Because method acting, especially people like this who go so deep into it, they have trouble getting out of it. Yeah. yeah. Especially a character like this. When he won an Oscar, I believe, for Lincoln, um, he's won so many awards that I, I can't remember which speech this was specifically, but he thanked his wife, and he said she has lived with all of these characters 24-7 when I come home from like the, the filming shoot or like the shooting of the day. And she has to like deal with them at home. Like, could you imagine cooking dinner and like getting ready in the morning for Daniel fucking Plainview? <laughs> Just hanging out with Daniel Plainview, <laughs> yeah, like watching Jeopardy in like and a shit. family setting. No, it's just like, I imagine sitting at the breakfast table, you know, and she's like making breakfast and like drinking her coffee. And you have like this, like, like tight knit, vested hat yeah. on, reading the paper with that glower. You know, it's just, it would be so, I mean, like I say, like, like I said earlier, he's truly terrifying in this oh, movie. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it, it's a psychological horror film. He reminds me of an abusive father. He, re- he reminds me of this kind of, and he, to a degree, is a very abusive yeah. father. He's a very abusive father, maybe in a very subtle way to H.W., because there are times where I will concede that, you know, he's holding H.W. after he's deafened and kind of murmuring to him and humming to him, and, you know, giving him milk laced with whiskey to put him asleep so that he could, like, actually work. There's, like, the back and forth of, like, being an abusive father that's working too much and also trying to love your son in a way that will show him. And I think the big turn is when he sends his son away. I think that's when he loses that tool and, and starts to fall apart. That is true, actually. Like, his, his like, facade, he can't be the family man kind of guy anymore to persuade people. And people are calling him out on that, the fellow prospectors, and he's getting violently aggressive mm-hmm. at them. I'm going to come into your house and slit your throat. <laughs> Don't tell me how to raise my son. You're like, damn, bro. I know. It's so aggressive. I, <laughs> I also love how we we only ever see him consume steak and vodka. Yep. Really? He needs meat, meat and clear liquors. Oh yeah, I didn't even realize that. He might have he might have had some uh, something else to drink, but especially at the end, he's just like sitting there like a. Like a rabid animal chewing that old steak yeah. and like just just chugging vodka. <laughs> I guess he had a milkshake right at the end. In a sense. Oh yeah, <laughs> he drinks <laughs> he drinks a milkshake as well. But it's hard. It's really hard talking about this movie. I know we're doing like a director spotlight. We could do we could like, do a whole episode on it. It's yeah. hard talking yeah. about this movie without. Daniel Day Lewis in it, and if anyone has the time who's listening, I would say and go watch the Charlie Rose interview between Paul Thomas Anderson with Daniel Day Lewis, because Daniel Day Lewis rarely gives interviews. Paul Thomas Anderson isn't the most like exuberant person either, so it's a good moment to get like a really deep down, like in depth interview with the two of them and ask them like the dynamics that were going through their mind. Also, quick mention, I think that. Daniel Day-Lewis is in nearly every single minute of film in this movie, which is just insane. Like, besides maybe yeah, some it, of the landscape shots. Yeah, it really shots. doesn't leave him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't leave his character. Yeah, speaking of landscape, I just, right before we move on, I just, I would be remiss, and I, we mentioned this a little bit briefly earlier, but we talked so much about the acting, but this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, so you can expect lots of the technical stuff we've been talking about earlier. Beautiful shots, beautiful single-length shots. 
uh, uninterrupted vistas that will just like literally take your breath away after seeing this movie. Yeah, four hundred times. All the technical elements of the score. This began. Yes, uh, Anderson's longtime partnership with Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who we talked about last time, who would go on to score all of Anderson's subsequent films, except for one. Tom York did one, but he's also from Radiohead. <laughs> so, um, and it's it, don't worry, it doesn't sound like Radiohead. Yeah, I mean, Radiohead is a good band. Yeah. in my opinion. But now, this you movie know, is droning. The score is so droning. Yeah, it's a lot of ambience. It's a lot of long yeah, percussions that are like yeah, yeah, lots of percussion, lots of strings that are like drawn out for a long. time. Very dissonant too. It almost yeah, horribly. Yeah, the 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 stick kind of. Beat yeah. that it has yeah. during the whole oil derrick yeah. explosion oh, is tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. It just yeah, like it just, it just yeah. bores into you. It's like just clawing its way deeper and deeper. Yeah, it's a it's a gorgeous film in every single way. It's yeah. a profoundly interesting meditation on man and uh, I don't know. Apropos, apropos, I brought this up last time, but the concept of Anderson trying to write the great American novel. This is based on a novel called Oil by Upton Sinclair, but from what I understand it, it veers quite drastically away from that. So it's very much a based on kind of thing. Yeah. Which I've not read. I don't know if you guys have read. No, I haven't. No. A little call- Upton know. Sinclair callback, by yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah seriously. Right. <laughs> For a Mank episode. A little Bill Nye the Science Guy callback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, if, if he's trying to do that here, I, I suppose it's just getting into the the weird dark psychology at the core of like what's going on in America at the time. Yeah. This isn't your Daniel Boone, like American frontier story. This is a whole different level to satisfy the video game reference for that. Um, very much, uh, if everyone has ever played red dead redemption, it's very much the same kind of tone of character about a reprehensible person. And, um, yeah, it's uh, very much the same type of aesthetic. Well, anything more to say before we move on? I mean, we could talk forever. Yeah. We could do two but, episodes uh, on this movie. Yeah. For the sake of brevity, we'll, uh, well, relative brevity, <laughs> this will be a, a honker of an episode, I yeah. think. <laughs> but I guess if you haven't seen the movie, to anyone listening, just why? What are you doing? Like, <laughs> stop everything you're doing or, now. Or watch it. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, just, was, or you could uh, just watch yeah. it. And then you I'm, see you, it I'm and usually the cool asshole. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Just, it take takes some of the heat away from me complaining about <laughs> douchey podcasts. Uh, so yeah, um, definitely one of the watch best. Watch it. It's one watch of the it. best movies ever yeah. made, and in, in every way. Um. So, five years later, 2012, we have the master which was the original impetus for this episode before we ended up expanding it into the full-blown director spotlight because PTA deserves yeah. it. Um, and I'm going to let Alex handle this one. So this was actually the... Uh, this was my choice after Funny Games in the rotation um, to try and make up for my lost <laughs> credentials. <laughs> um <laughs> regain this respect of your yeah exactly and i didn't want to do there will be blood specifically because it's just it's such like a behemoth of a movie culturally critically whatever you want to say about it any superlative you want to attach to it but i feel like with this next attempt in the master 
it was i don't want to say it was refreshing but along the same line and like tone of there will be blood there's a story there that is just a little more populated with different characters different ideals and things and whatnot and basically to give a quick summary the movie's about like an alcoholic desperately alcoholic he'll drink anything he'll put anything into his body to have some type of head change in Joaquin Phoenix who's a World War II vet stumbles into like life in California into the late 1940s and 50s and is trying to kind of find his way and he's in San Francisco at one point just drunkenly and slovenly walking along a dock and he wanders onto this boat that is having this little like dinner party or something or it's like a regular party cocktails and shit and he ends up falling into this group or this organization we can call it a cult led by philip seymour hoffman um who's a joy to watch in this film and him and walking phoenix basically i would say the movie is about their homosocial relationship and i mean that in the least sexual way possible it's about these two men like vibing off of each other almost and philip seymour hoffman takes walking phoenix like almost under his wing as like i don't i don't even know how to put this but there are disciples who follow people based on like oh i've read all your work like i'm so into you and things like that but then almost like in boogie nights when bert Reynolds' character walks into the dishwashing scene and meets Mark Wahlberg's character, it's like, oh, I have to be with you. Like, we have to be together in this journey. Like, you are everything I was looking for without ever saying one word to me. And that is the exact same, like, dynamic almost that we have in this film. Um, to end the summary, it just goes on to this little journey and gets a little, gets a little wild. Yeah, it does. Yeah, Jeff was talking last time about how this theme of of like fatherhood or parenthood mm. crops up in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies and even though the two lead actors are I want to say pretty close to the same age, maybe Hoffman's a little older, there is a strong father figure dynamic going on Definitely, there. Definitely, yeah. I believe it's also worth mentioning that this is loosely based upon Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman you can basically think of as L. Ron Hubbard, who's just spouting a bunch of you know pseudo spiritual nonsense and making shit up as he goes along, yeah. but also kind of believing it. Maybe it's hard to say. Yeah, this is a very weird movie. I ended it and I was like, wow, I really enjoyed watching that. I have almost no idea why. <laughs> it was a very obtuse movie. It had. I mean, it's it's great to look at, of course. Uh, all of his films are. And reveling in the performances is especially strong. It'll, it'll, it'll be strong again in Inherent Vice, which is even more abuse. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I almost didn't know what to think about this movie, except that I, I liked it. But I feel like I need to see it again. I don't know. Jeff, what did you think? I loved this movie. So this was All my right. first time seeing The Master. And it was really up my alley. It's like, I mean, I love Paul Thomas Anderson's films, all of them. But this one in particular was very much... Especially had... Punch Drunk Love. <laughs> yes, especially Punch Drunk Love. Um, oh, he didn't use... It's a good movie. I, I train of thought. <laughs> um, God damn you, every time. Um, so yeah, it, this is a fantastic uh, movie. That's a 
my kind of exploration into the mind of, again, an egotistical person, but in the way that is almost opposite of Daniel Plainview, somebody who like knows that they're full of shit. Like Lancaster, Lan- uh, Lancaster Dodd knows that he's full of shit. He never men- uh, uh, admits it, but he knows. And you, he, there's uh, that kind of that scene where he's sitting at his desk and he's drinking and he's kind of has his like hand over his head and he's like almost crying and there's like this soft light on him. You can, I, for me, I took that as like this very this revelation of like, oh man, I am like truly a fe- a phony yeah. and a fake, and it's. And it, it's so, it was, it was such an impactful scene for me because it was just so like, oh, wow, like this guy doesn't drink his own Kool-Aid. But I, I saw the, a lot of really great themes that just popped out immediately. Like, you know, abandonment. Like, you know, Freddie Quell is somebody who, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know if how much they really go into his background I from my only, my only one watch of the movie, but... When you leave the military, some people have a little bit of separation anxiety mm-hmm. because they were you know, so beholden to this this machine of the military. They always had somebody to report to, had a place to sleep, had a purpose. And you can see that Freddie Quell is looking for a purpose. And he's missing that in his life. He's just wandering and he just wanders into this Wandering boat. around, drinking jet fuel. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> mixing, oh mixing, mixing jet fuel with like sangria. Missing photo processing chemicals. I've heard people do that with like, like, yeah, like that kind of stuff or like boat fuel, you know, it's like, there's all, it, it, I don't know. It's fucking ridiculous. It was the thing that they did that soldiers did. Some of them, I can't imagine it's very good for you. Yeah. I don't imagine you'll live a long life drinking any kind of jet fuel or fuel of any kind. Please don't do that. It's a, it's a weird combo of characters because they're so different. Philip Seymour Hoffman is so meticulous and mannered and Joaquin Phoenix has this this wildness and this sexuality like he's just and he just gives no fucks he you have a great scene of him jerking off in the ocean yeah (laughs) (laughs) he is beast like even more than plain view i would say like i love that that's such a good he's like an animal wandering from (laughs) water hole to water hole of alcohol yeah it's that scene in this movie (laughs) he sits down at like a dinner and he writes he just writes you want to fuck and hands it to a, a girl dude fucking love Joaquin Phoenix in this movie it's, he's so oh, he's good he's really good yeah cause he's somebody who just doesn't give a shit at all he's lost all inhibition he's almost alcoholism incarnate yeah yeah so like Alex if you were to distill this movie what would you say it's about I would say it's about manipulation uh, mm-hmm. The emotional manipulation of a man who seems to be kind of simple. I don't want to say Walking Phoenix is simple, but in this film, he's very juvenile. He's like a child. And if you go back to the reading of fatherhood, it's like a father manipulating a child in, in a way. Um, until, you know, the maybe the child rises up and decides to abandon it. But he never, like, it's not like a clash of egos, like in the previous in film we were talking about right it's more like no it's very much a relationship yeah and it's like how far will the tolerance of lancaster dodd like how how high is joaquin phoenix's tolerance for this bullshittery you know um and or their tolerance for each other even yeah yeah 100 percent. you know um and they both like bring each other into their arena for a moment and live there but then it slowly becomes extremely uncomfortable 
and they have to just like expel each other right from their lives um and yeah so i would say that i always watch this movie and i think of the way that philip seymour hoffman's character is just manipulating joaquin phoenix for the first part of it um Hmm. you know he he helps him like whip up his little recipes of of booze and whatnot and like partakes in that with him um but I mean, obviously, there's manipulation going on a bunch of different levels, and I love the scene with Lancaster Dodd's son, played by an actor who I can't think of right now, but he's in Breaking Bad. Jesse Plemons. Okay, got it. He's also in an episode of Black Mirror that's really good. But this guy, when they talk to each other, right, and he's like, "You know, this is all just a fucking scam." Like that's his real son. His real son is like, I have been dealing with this since I was like a child. This dude is fucking insane, and I just go along with all of it because, just because. And Joaquin Phoenix is, like, so disturbed by this conversation to the point where I believe he takes out that anger on someone else later on who also doubts the efficacy or the truth of what Dodd is preaching. There's a funny real-life mirror to this, um, a little anecdote. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson screened this movie for his buddy Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise got really mad at this scene. Oh, and apparently no they way. exchanged words. Oh dear. Why? Scientologist. Because Tom Cruise is a big old Scientologist. No, I know that, but I mean, he's not. He's saying that this fictional cult that the movie is part of is bullshit, not Scientology. Yeah, but it's it's uh, very heavily it's, implied. It's, I understand it's that, that it's not it's not like you don't need to be a genius to see what he's talking about here but I mean it's like he's not saying it's Scientology so it's like this is just mm. a, I, I get it I get it but to and we all know that this is a very Tom Cruise reaction but it just seems very sensitive yeah it does I mean it seems overly sensitive we know Tom Cruise is a very overly sensitive person yeah. so that makes Man, sense all those Scientologists are sensitive about it they'll, yeah, but they'll it, sue the shit out of you yeah, exactly. But it just it doesn't like he's not saying anything. I don't know, it's just a, that's just a weird reaction. It's almost like you know you're full of shit because mm-hmm. you're getting like angry. It's like the Daniel Plainview thing when he's getting angry at the prospectors. It's like you know you're full of shit. You feel ashamed, so you're gonna lash out. Yeah, that's true. Actually, there's some type of like uh, almost like averting or avoiding the responsibility by being like like Tom Cruise might have seen himself like on this in this exactly film. just like. No, fuck you. Maybe, maybe he's just a true believer. I don't know what Tom Cruise's psychology is. I don't think I don't. he's a great critical thinker. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's that fact that Christian Bale, like everyone knows about this, that Christian Bale based the character in American Psycho off Tom Cruise. Holy shit! I didn't really? know that. Oh, you didn't know that off of real uh, life Tom Cruise? Yeah. So he saw the interview with Tom Cruise um, and on Oprah when he was like going crazy. Wasn't that yeah, way I, after American Psycho? I don't know. He saw an interview with Tom Cruise, he says. And okay. I don't Maybe it wasn't the Oprah one. He saw an interview with Tom Cruise. I, I think it was way before that, yeah. And he said that there was this weird, um, like, overtly friendliness, but with nothing behind the eyes. And he said yeah. he used that as inspiration for the character in American Psycho. Interesting. Um, I also want to give props to Amy Adams in this movie. Oh, hell yeah. I think she's fantastic and is... She operates in a weird space that uh, I want. I need to see this movie again to like <laughs> fully see my feelings about it. But she's sort of like 
I think she inhabits this this like nexus around which the all these guys swirl. Uh, there's something about her in this movie where she feels more central maybe to what's going on mm-hmm. than you might think. And her performance is also fantastic. She really holds up against these titans. I will say maybe on a rewatch cuz on my rewatches she has just grown into like one of the more prominent characters in the film. The first time I saw it, I was just so like focused on Hoffman and Phoenix doing their thing together that like I th- I just saw her as kind of like either an obstacle for the narrative or just like a you know a problem for both of the two two other characters to work out. But yeah, on rewatches and things like that, she she's Lady Macbethian, I will say, in her positioning in the story. So ah. interesting you say that, Alex. Oh my god. It's because That's a great way to put it. It's very um reminiscent of the story that it's about because I don't know if you guys know that much about Scientology but the um, L. Ron Hubbard's wife or no not L. Ron Hubbard sorry but the current president of Scientology whoever it is his wife like disappeared under really mysterious circumstances and like he's never been prosecuted for it Jesus but no one's ever seen her again she just like disappeared out of nowhere so there's this very like weird thing going on where like it's like where where where'd she go and nobody like talks about it he's never been like investigated no one's investigated her disappearance yeah be and careful man they're gonna come I after us know. now <laughs> all all hail zero yeah. <laughs> so like so like there's an element of that in amy adams performance where she is really like this larger than life character lancaster dodd is really at home beholden to, to his wife like she really holds the keys to the castle oh, i mean yeah that scene was like uh, damn what scene alex describe it in detail so <laughs> philip seymour hoffman is like brushing his teeth washing his face in the mirror amy adams his wife comes up behind him and she's a little perturbed by the fact that him and walking phoenix are like making and getting drunk on this hooch and she slowly just starts you know giving him a hand job and is like what does she what does she call it no more does she say hooch no more booze or something no more booze okay. i think so through the thrusting of her hand job it's just like she's like giving instruction to philip seymour hoffman and he slowly succumbs to not only like the orgasmic but like just the weight of her authority while she's doing this to him and then it ends very quickly and she like washes her hands and just leaves and he's just left yep. there in his po- post orgasmic like stuff I guess he's just like it's a really, it's a really gross scene. Yeah, it's a really, <laughs> really intense scene. You're like I, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm not sure I needed to see his coitus. Face. Yeah, right. Yeah, that but, would, uh, I could have gone without that. It's like it's like because he's like older. He's like red, I know. <laughs> sweating, <laughs> and it's just like you can like feel it. You're like, ugh. Yeah, this movie is like a, a, such a representation of like I know I I talked about in, in There Will Be Blood like the ego versus ego, but this is really id versus ego Ooh. in this movie. Phoenix is definitely the id, you know the the inhibition. I mean the in, uh, the ambition, the forward thinking, like you know the the, the movement, the forward progress, and uh, Hoffman is definitely the super ego. Yeah. That's like you know the the very self centered and self controlled part of the body and uh, part of the mind, excuse me. And it's like these two kind of components of the psych the psyche fighting each other back and forth, and they can't really exist in the same space for too long. Like you were saying, 
before they have to repel each other. There's a lot of psychological exploration in this movie that I really like. And there's a, I wanted to ask a question. While this is obviously steeped in Scientology, I also caught a lot of just general cult references. Mm. And I wanted to think, like, see if you guys caught that as well. Like, they kind of throw out different references to different cults. Do they? Uh, did they talk about Charlie Manson? They did. Well, I, there's one reference to the Manson cult that yeah. I I heard. I don't. He, I don't remember other cult speak specifically, but I think it it like the Scientology thing is there in the background, but more so it is about a cult leader in in that realm. You know, it's it's. I mean, it's about the relationship between these two guys. But if you want to draw the camera back, it is about cults you know and how this 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 sort of operates um so i think it is more broad than just scientology if that answers your question yeah okay i just want to see if you were getting that same feeling as well i think paul thomas anderson would appreciate that rating too i know he gets kind of upset when people talk about this movie and constantly like bring up the the Scientology aspect for it. Because obviously he put that in the film, but I don't think that's what he was trying to do when he sat well, down yeah, to write Exactly. It. When I watched this movie, I didn't think of it in that way. And yeah, and it, it speaks to why it's such an interesting film and the, like why his films are really interesting broadly is because they're not... You can't just be like, this is about this. I mean, I asked Alex to distill it, but that's just one reading you can have. Yeah. You know, same with Jeff, and I love the reading about the ego and the id. Yeah. That's fantastic. I didn't think about that either. But it's like, this movie is doing so many things, and there's so many little, like, webs going on beneath the surface. And it's, it's to the point where, like, saying it's just about one thing oh, does yeah. it a disservice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah. It's an exploration of a lot of different ideas. And then also, for the most part, just a character piece about these two men and their relationship together. Which And that part is so good that that's all it even needed to be. It's so interesting and, and subtle and weird. It shows, it's representative of Paul Thomas Anderson as a writer and a filmmaker because he, he's able to do both. And that's so brilliant, is that he can focus on this amazing relationship without any context really about these two characters but then he gets to add the context that flavors it and spices it and makes it fulfilling without overburdening the movie with unnecessary exposition or detail it's it's just it's it's perfect it's a really great balance of great filmmaking and great writing i'd love to see his attempt at writing a novel i don't know what his like prose style is maybe it's terrible I, I have no idea but i'd be interested to see i'd be interested to see that's all it's definitely a, It'd be a very visual novel right you can tell that he reads a yeah lot. absolutely absolutely well there's just like a uh, speaking of the cult thing it's just there was a very big nod when he calls i believe he calls freddy walking phoenix a pig fuck yeah was it him yeah, he does. yeah when he's like calling when he's calling out because Freddy's like calling him mm-hmm. out, basically, and he calls him a pig fuck and tells him to leave, and that was just very reminiscent to me of the Manson family cult. Was that was he saying that to Freddy or that guy who? Crashed I think it was the that party? guy actually. Yeah, it was that guy. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know that uh, Philip Philip Seymour Hoffman um, improvised that line. It may, I mean, yeah, you could definitely God. tell. 
but, which, fuck. Rest in peace. Which takes a little bit away from my reading of it because if he improved it, then he probably just was trying to like create like a very genuine on the spot insult. Paul Thomas Anderson teasered out some of his hair before that take to get him angry. Oh, that's hilarious. Because, you know, honestly, that 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 scene is like really the first I think one of the first times you see him like break his like super calm and collected mold of like being a spiritual leader. Right. And he's just brought right back down to earth. And he's almost acting in that sense like the id, like he's just giving into all of this inhibition and just beastly lashing out at this guy and then slowly like the blood drains from his face and he comes back to normal but yeah the redness in philip seymour hoffman's face in this movie when he's like uh excited is is awesome to see yeah it's also i think i'd have to look at his filmography but i think it's one of the last great philip seymour hoffman movies before he before he sadly od'd such a loss yeah definitely it really was he i put him up there with daniel day lewis as one of the best actors of this or any generation oh definitely yeah and then and in a totally different way too right like it's cool to see people like philip seymour hoffman doing his thing because it shows you that there's great and like refined and just superb acting outside of certain roles you don't always have to be like the brooding dark movie star which i'm not saying that daniel day lewis is he just plays that extremely well um yeah philip seymour hoffman gives a little bit of world and react like earth earthness i guess is what i will say to acting you know like ah he's yeah there's a lot of warmth in his performances yeah Yeah, daniel day lewis's performances are very calculated Hmm. there's warmth that there needs to be yeah. Whereas in Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think... There's a lot of warmth in Lincoln. Yeah, oh, that, yeah, that is definitely calcu- true. I think it's calculated. Whereas in, I think it's a natural thing from just... Hoffman's oh, I get what you're saying. It's more just, just his appearance and his, he has a more jolly-like appearance. And, you know, his characters tend to have a little more emotional range. Even in Boogie mm. Nights, like, if you watch his, his character, Scotty, during the whole thing, in relation to people like John C. Riley's character and Mark Wahlberg's character... I don't know. There's something about him that is just so like, it's just vulnerable, I guess, or like warmth is a, is a perfect way to put it. I think. Yeah. You'll see that again in, in like Capote mm-hmm. and Synecdoche, New York. Capote, man. Wow. I haven't thought about that movie in a while. I was all over it when it was doing its Oscar thing. Cause he was like, you know, it's fantastic. He's great. Oh yeah. He's, uh, he's Truman Capote. It's crazy. <laughs> but I'm glad you guys liked it at least. It, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I I greatly enjoyed it. I yeah, wouldn't I say it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. Um although I mean it's you can't beat there will be blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's so maybe film. that goes without <laughs> yeah. saying. But uh yeah. Yeah, there will be blood is definitely the the, the, the summit of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Boogie Nights is close for me. Oh, definitely, yeah. But um, we got a weird one coming up Holy here. Holy shit. Oh, one I love. Holy. 2014, Inherent Vice. <laughs> oh, Based boy. on, yes, okay. Inherent Vice is a movie that's about something. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure of that much. It's based on a novel by Thomas Pynchon, whose books are legendarily obtuse and difficult. So I guess it's faithful. I'm not sure. Um. <laughs> 
Joaquin Phoenix plays a private investigator who's also this hippie stoner in 70s Los Angeles. So we're, we're back to Paul Thomas Anderson in his native habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joaquin Phoenix will go to a location, talk to a character who tells him the names of more characters, and then he goes on to another location to talk to another character. And I had very little idea of what was happening the entire movie, but I really enjoyed watching it, which is interesting. The combination of filmmaking, acting, and score made it super interesting. And it's also one of his funny movies. Jeff and I watched this together, and we decided it was the the Joaquin Phoenix reaction shot movie. The yes. way, like, his reaction shots to these characters are, are hilarious. Um, he almost feels like an audience surrogate to me a lot of the time because he's almost just as confused as you are with this nonsense plot that we're trying to wade through. And like, like he has his little notebook and he'll, they'll, someone will tell him the name of something and he writes down something in Mexican, <laughs> you know, something in Spanish. Paranoia alert. Um, yeah. So Jeff, why don't <laughs> you explain to us the plot of Inherent Vice? Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> and please be, be as detailed as possible. <laughs> All right, so um, inherent vice. Jesus, <laughs> um, I feel I, I got this. I so this is a movie that took me a little time. I had to sleep on this movie. Uh, me and Jesse watched this movie and Phantom Thread uh, right after one another, um, just to kind of finish out this Paul Thomas Andersonathon. Mm-hmm. And um, inherent vice, we were both kind of checking out by the end, but not checking out of the movie, just the plot. And we were more just like reveling in how fun this movie was. So uh, Inherent Vice follows Larry Doc Sportello, who is played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a private, they'd call him Doc for for the most part, and he prefers that. And so he's a private investigator who is the least professional nor private, like just reliable looking private investigator you could ever see i mean i guess it is the 1970s so he's got the big uh, mutton chops and the long hair but he's very disheveled and uh doesn't really look like he's got all his shit together but he is visited by an, an ex-girlfriend who has uh, recently left him for somebody else and he um didn't expect to see her again she re- uh, she comes to him pleading for help um that she is to do something even after the first scene <laughs> Even after the first scene, we paused it. We paused it. I was like, wait, Jeff, what's going on? And you're so, like, I'm so not sure, I'm, but I think it's this. I'm telling you the plot as I best interpreted it, and yeah. I'm getting towards the end of what I have could have interpreted. Okay. So bear, bear with me, We folks. don't need to it's go not, super deep. It's not going to go that much farther. So basically, yeah, he's searching for something uh, for his ex-girlfriend, and then she disappears. So then the investigation turns towards finding her where where did she go specifically she's kind of involved in this seedy underbelly uh real estate agent kind of world and that's as far as i can really get josh brolin flates a banana owen wilson's in it this is a movie where characters would appear and you'd hear their name before the actor would come on screen so you'd be like okay 
and then some unbelievably famous actor would appear and you're like okay sure you're like oh this person Josh might Brolin. as well be in this oh, movie it's benicio del toro oh, God, yeah. oh it's owen wilson oh it's martin oh, short it's reese you're like, oh it's reese witherspoon yeah, this movie just goes like sure why that. not who's next <laughs> And um, I will say the f- cap it all off. Like while this movie has many characters, and like we just said, all played by really great and brilliant actors, there's one character that I really love. She's a side character. Her name is Sordelijay, and she's kind of our narrator, our unreliable narrator. She's played by Joanna Newsom, oh, yeah. somebody I yeah, yeah. don't know their acting career very well. And I just really loved her performance. She had this peaceful, calm delivery to the narrative whatever it was and to her own lines because we do also see her in person um and i just she kind of was the the moment of respite she was the campfire if you will before heading out to another adventure of walking phoenix reacting to everyone doing wild shit yeah it's it's crazy because like i had no idea what was happening in the movie but like you jeff after sleeping on it I realized like the less I cared about that because I'm just like reveling in the basically the comedy of these performances. It's a it's an extremely funny movie. And you get to see Josh Brolin literally gag on a frozen banana. Um yeah, we both I think we both checked out at the exact same moment of of the plot, which was funny cuz like they were saying dialogue and it was like an hour and a half into this two and a half hour movie. And my brain was so strained trying to figure out the logistics of this plot and all these names to where they, they were saying plot dialogue and my brain just literally did not compute it at all. And I I think I made a noise and then Jeff laughed. (laughs) And then I turned to you and I went, I turned to you and I went, Blurgity blurgity blurg, <laughs> <laughs> and then you were, and then you laughed. You were like, "Oh yeah!" And then we were at the same moment realized that we had no idea what was fuck was going on. But Alex, yeah, what did you think oh, it's, of Inherent? I Vice? will say, I definitely agree with you guys that it's his funniest movie. It's it's actually like pretty hilarious, um, and it relies on a few different like methods of comedy. Sometimes it feels almost like slapsticky. Like, you know, even with the deep throating of the frozen banana or him getting bonked <laughs> on the head at like a sex massage parlor. Like part of it feels like uh, the pussy eating special. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, I thought I was going to get this. There's so many scenes that you will remember after watching this movie that you'll forget and will make you happy. So without bringing up this other director to muddy the PTA waters, but both of them see themselves as contemporaries. This is the most Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson movie, in my opinion. It like it almost feels like it exists in some of the same environments. Some of the music soundtrack choices are very interesting in the background, like old pop music um, that's like at a low volume while the characters are talking quickly to each other. Um, and then the narrator, actually. Every time I heard the narrator's voice, I thought of Uma Thurman doing her thing in Kill Bill every once in a while mm. and she does it from that you know third point of view like oh the bride thought this and in this movie it's like she's like uh sort sort of leger her sort she's of like yeah. oh doc thought this and doc thought this you can tell it's it's an adapted from a novel or a book right um 
I thought this movie was like almost Paul Thomas Anderson's way of being like, okay, I made two movies that basically gave you six characters and there will be blood and the master. You combine them, you have like people you can count on your hand who you really know in those films. And this movie, he's like, we're just going to go fucking all out. We're like, I'm going to have so many different characters in this. Like Martin Short turns up at one point. And I was just like... With an amazing oh, performance, yeah, by the way. Sh- shows up and absolutely knocks it out of yeah. the park. And I, I actually really, really liked this movie. I need to watch it definitely again. And there were moments like you guys where I was like checking out here and there. But I think I love the the reading of Joaquin Phoenix being an audience surrogate the most. Because it definitely felt like that. And like that reaction when he looks at that woman's like baby that was born to heroin addiction <laughs> oh she looks yeah. at the photograph he's just like ah, he's, oh, ah! and then just snaps right back in yeah. yeah there's a lot of weird snap humor in this that just like it's very meta almost it's outside like nobody acknowledges yeah. it in the world Dude, the joaquin phoenix reacting to things when josh brolin comes in at the end and starts eating his marijuana yeah. <laughs> it's one of, that's one of the best scenes in cinema just josh brolin comes up takes a puff of his joint eats it then just eats handfuls of what can only be described as like oregano weed <laughs> yes yeah, just just mostly clippings yeah. like, picks up it's the tray just... and just dumps it into his mouth and you have the reaction shot of joaquin phoenix just like it's like somebody watching a hallucination yeah yeah he's like just so he's like staring up at him and to be honest josh brolin's character bigfoot i almost thought like that name made sense because he's so outside of whatever plot exists in this movie he's almost like the unknowing unwitting antagonist like he comes there's a scene where walking you know he gets pulled in the police department and Josh Boland's character plays a, a detective, uh, an actual police detective, and kind of they have a tenuous relationship. They kind of hate each other, but are kind of friends yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And so he tells him, like, stay out of this, you know, you're a fuck up. Basically insults him. Walking Phoenix leaves, continues the investigation, and proceeds to leave a, a place that he was investigating. And Josh Brolin's character is just out there and just proceeds to beat the living shit out of him. Oh, yeah, that scene was I weird. never understood. I never understood the context Neither of that Neither did scene. I. When they're in, the, they're in the tie room, right? And he's, like, going to hook up with Luz. Or Luz is, like, trying to hook up with him. And she's like, oh, I got to go. Sorry. And then he, he, like, says to himself before he leaves, he, like, hears something or something. He's like, oh, Bigfoot. And then you see him, like... I don't even know what his escape attempt was, but he just like jumps on the hood of the police car and then he just kicks him to death. Like not to death. Excuse me. He just beats him. I have no idea. I thought maybe it was like a displacement thing. Like maybe we'd get the context that later on. No, they never referenced it again. Maybe I'm going to say maybe they did. I feel like that scene came back for a moment, but I was so confused about the plot at that point and like how things connected because Josh Brolin is connected with the plot. There's something about like, oh, it was his partner and then he steals a bunch of yes. heroin. But I, I have zero idea how that tracks with the narrative. Zero. Yeah, you know, <laughs> apparently his partner was murdered by somebody that the real estate company was involved with dealing drugs. And then that's blargety, why blargety, blargety. <laughs> it's blargity, blargity, blarg, you know, like, <laughs> to give an idea to there's anyone no listening context. to like the 
the craziness of this film. When I first started it, because I hadn't seen it, I watched it this past week, week and a half. I thought that my streaming service had started the film halfway through the movie. And I was like, oh, this is all fun. Nice. And so I got up from my chair and everything because I have like this little way that I watch movies in my room. I like sit in a chair or lie in my bed. And I got up and I was like huffing and puffing because I was like, God damn fucking streaming service. You know, I'm going to have to fix this. And I realized it was just the very beginning of the movie. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fuck it. Like, this is it. That's such a perfect way to describe what coming into this movie feels like yeah because like i said after the first scene we paused it and talked to each other trying to figure out what was happening already <laughs> after the first yeah. scene to me to me it felt you you mentioned tarantino to me this felt very cohen brothers oh, that's another one i was gonna say damn it yeah. yeah i'd have to agree with that yeah it has this this wry humor to it and I don't know, just the way it was shot, I guess. I'm not sure exactly why, but I definitely got Cohen vibes. Maybe also just having this panoply of actors <laughs> yeah, who yeah. like they're 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 engaged in telling a narrative, but they're also playing off each other in all these wonderful ways that you see in Cohen movies. They remind me of Waking Life, if anyone's ever seen Waking Life. I have not. It was That's uh, a crazy comparison. In in yes, not in Well, Waking Life is also equally bonkers as far as plot but it's about like the fact that you just have these characters that exist in these scenes and they they're in other scenes but they tend to only exist in that moment in that scene if that makes any sense like it's almost like that scene is the whole movie and then we move on it's like holy shit where'd we go like you were so invested in that one environment they set the tone very well and then paul thomerson just takes these hard lefts the whole movie you're like oh shit okay all right we're going this way now and it it it's so interesting. Like, I mean, I can only use an example of the brothel. Like, the brothel scene just threw me for a fucking loop. I was like, okay, what is happening now? <laughs> yeah. Like, we're at this brothel that's very... They're not... Like, they don't know the definition of tongue-in-cheek in, cheek in oh, this brothel. Wait, <laughs> they know the definition we, of tongue-in-box. We were, we were laughing sure. at it because... What was it called? It's like this tiny, dingy place out in the middle of nowhere. And it's like the pussy cafe or something. And you're like, oh, yes, that's where I want to go. <laughs> it was so blatant. And then, like, the menu was like the pussy eaters special. Yeah. And it was just like, it was just, it was so out. And that scene felt very Tarantino to me. The humor was very Tarantino. Like, I, I definitely agree with that read. And the colors, the palette of this movie. I mean, oh. Joaquin Phoenix walks around the whole movie looking like fucking Serpico. You are <laughs> in does, the 70s yeah. in this movie. Yeah. The soundtrack, everything. It's 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 glorious. For a moment, yeah. I was waiting for like Dirk Diggler or like Burt Reynolds' character to just like pop his head out of like a fucking quick corner on the street or yeah, something. Yeah, it had, it had that, yeah. Very, that, that color. In, the uh, L.A. Valley. Anderson, yeah. Yeah. yeah, very L.A. No, it, was, it, was, it was very reminiscent of that time, that world that he captures so beautifully. If I had to distill it down to like a a trope a narrative trope not in the bad sense of the term but like does it feel like you got to you guys like it's the typical like detective or police officer is trying to uncover what he thinks is like just a simple case of disappearance and then it just like blows up into this huge network of like all these going ons you know like i'm thinking like north by northwest maybe or like what's another movie that does that like girl with the dragon tattoo kind of stuff like oh there's but actually play it thing. backwards yeah seriously <laughs> <laughs> but play the movie backwards exactly. and that's inherent vice <laughs> like it's just like take any good like 
crime novel or crime noir detective movie yeah. and then just like start moving the scenes around <laughs> it's like mel it's like mel brooks tried to make one of those movies after yeah. taking like 20 film classes and a bunch of acid yeah <laughs> what was your guys's most surprising like actor to appear in the movie like when the, when that person appeared you're like what the fuck that's a great I question think, i think like i think when benicio del toro sat down because he has <laughs> such a small part as well and that was one of the early ones before i was inured to the idea that all these great actors are just going to be like you know falling from the sky in this movie <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh benicio del toro but then yeah like martin short uh, oh martin Wilson, short was all of me. them uh, Martin Short was hilarious yeah, as the, like the, just, the yeah, cocaine yeah. dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just his performance. When Martin Short appeared, I was like, okay, this movie is fucking bonkers. Yeah. Because Martin Short's at the point of his career where like he's really only taking like little bit bonkers roles. So it's like if he's gonna be in this movie, I could, yeah, he was in like Arrested Development as another insane oh, fucking role. God, he's so funny. In <laughs> like he's just he's good at playing these just insane characters. And when he came in, I was like, all right, this movie is proper off the rails. Yeah, it was interesting to see Maya Rudolph. We were talking about her last time. Just there for a second. Ugh. Yeah, I know. I know. Just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like her, but I liked seeing her just because it was like glad she had two lines. Hey, honey, you want to be in this movie? And she's like, Yeah, sure, whatever. Fuck it. I was gonna just say Owen Wilson. I thought was like it wasn't like unnerving to see him, and he didn't really like act out of his range in this film. He pretty no, was he's very well, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, but I just loved the scene between them when they're like meeting in the dark. And he's, oh, yeah. he's like, just smoke this, you know, so we think we're like, you know, we're just out here having a smoke. And just the, I don't know, the dialogue between him and Walking Phoenix I thought was hilarious. But also Benicio Del Toro. When he sat down as the lawyer, I was like, holy shit. Because the <laughs> shot, you see Josh Brolin just look up and he says something. And you just see the bottom half. And then he sits down next to Walking Phoenix. And I was like, okay. It was so jarring. Yeah. I was like, all right. You're like, whoa, what's up, Benicio? <laughs> I know, it was so weird. It was like he was like it's like he wandered on set. He was just trying to like he was just coming to like visit Paul Thomas Anderson and have lunch. And then he was like, Oh shit, okay. Can I be in the movie? He's like, I'm sure. a lawyer. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I love how one thing that we were puzzling over is like Doc Walking Phoenix keeps going back to that whatever medical clinic run by Maya Rudolph and he just like gets stoned in the back and like huffs huffs nitrous mm-hmm. and we're like where is what is this that he can just do this they call in it a medical clinic it's so weird he like walks by an actual doctor the first time you see the scene and he's like hello doctor and the other guy's like doctor and then he just like yeah he's like yeah it's like a free clinic that they just let him lounge in a room and get high and like <laughs> ponder his cases it's like it's yeah. so PI office almost yeah, it's so fucking like just acid trip noir it's so great i think uh, i said this to jeff when we were watching it i think i turned to him and i was like i think this is a, a movie that's for people who have read the book in a lot of ways oh yeah you know like because i i would guarantee that if you're able to know what's going on and have like the background of it, you'll end up seeing far more that's that's clever going on in this movie than we're able to. 
like we're kind of just reveling in the silliness and the performances. Um, but I'm sure that there's like a lot of, you know, literary motifs and interconnections going on that we're not able to see. So it does, it did make me interested to read the novel. I haven't read any of Thomas Pynchon. I know he's very obtuse and difficult. Uh, not that you could get that from this movie, but <laughs> so a little bit bit of trivia that I know about because I actually wanted to research this film just because I have not read any of his works either, and I wanted to see like what drew Anderson to it. Um, he wrote it concurrently with the master um, because the master had gotten shelved indefinitely for a little bit, which is insane to me. But wh- that's neither here or there. Hollywood does its own thing. Um, so he it he actually adapted the entire novel sentence by sentence and then he cut down like he yeah he he wrote out the whole book yeah <laughs> which uh i'd only ever heard of that hunter thompson did that with the great gatsby and the yeah because he, did. he wanted to know what it felt like to write the great gatsby he did so that he with a lot of the whole thing short stories too yeah i didn't know that but um makes sense yeah so the way that anderson described the movie i think is like perfect like as we are, you know, discussing and struggling, not struggling, but trying to find out like what sentence would define this movie. He said it was deeply written and beautifully profound stuff mixed in with just the best fart jokes and poop jokes that you can imagine. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, well, unfortunately, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't jerk off in the ocean in this. No, one. he doesn't. Unfortunately, I guess. Yeah. He doesn't make the sand tits when he's out on the Pacific theater. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't fuck a sand sculptor. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's inherent vice. It's a big old wild, crazy thing. Yeah, definitely watch it. Yeah, definitely watch it. Uh, don't don't worry too much if you're confused. Might even be better if you just let that go. Yeah, you can. I mean, if you want to, definitely pay attention to people's names. Mm -hmm. Maybe like Mm -hmm. if you really want to get 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 into it write them down <laughs> i don't know but i'd say just let it go let it play let it ride let it be what it is and enjoy it and if you want to figure it out maybe just do that for the the second watch but um yeah usually when i'm horribly confused in a movie i'm not having fun but with this one i was having fun pretty much the whole time it did run long it's two and a half hours yeah, it is, it is. and it, it was it was exhausting yeah <laughs> but i think once i gave up i had more fun with it <laughs> i will say like to anyone who's more familiar with paul thomas anderson works who's, who's not seen this film just know it's okay to laugh like it's okay to like feel like that it is breaking out of the serious mold of there will be blood and the master like you can laugh at this movie, and it's supposed to make you laugh. It seems jarring and unsettling, but watching Josh Brolin order pancakes in Japanese is just, <laughs> I don't know, it's just fucking hilarious. Moto pancake! <laughs> Moto pancake! It's funny because the guy's responding in English. <laughs> like he knows how to speak English. <laughs> uh. Oh, man, no, this is a great film. I really love this one. And it's, um, we're seeing, I think it's safe to say, uh, starting with Inherent Vice, I mean, it's the last two movies in his filmography currently, but these, these are very, these 
starting the less Paul Thomas Anderson, his own movies, mm. I guess, if that makes sense. Like, this movie is still very much the same, very much the same shooting style, lots of emphasis on color and lighting and he's not doing He's not doing those look at me, I'm the director shots. Exactly. Though. It's all very subdued. He's not, like, kind of flaunting, flaunting, flaunting his skills yeah. as a director. It has he's, some of them. It has a few, yeah. but it's nowhere near, you know, Boogie Nights or, or um, Punch Drunk Love or anything. Yeah. And then in Phantom Thread, which is our next film, I mean, it's almost hard to see this as a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's it's definitely a departure. So yeah, let's do that. Um, three years later, 2017, we have Phantom Thread once again with Daniel Day-Lewis. So after the obtuse one-two punch of the master and inherent vice, PTA is finally getting back to giving us like a straight narrative. The movie stars Daniel Day-Lewis in what's what he ha- himself has said will be his last ever role. I hope not, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, it's about a dressmaker played by Daniel Day-Lewis and a woman uh, played by Vicky Crapes, who at first I thought was Rosamund Pike. I was like, oh, Rosamund Pike's in this. But it turns out it's not. Um, anyway, they fall in love. They're both pretty unlikable people in my mind. And they have a really weird, unhealthy relationship. The movie is what I would describe as elegant stuffiness. It it almost borders on the type of movie I call a manners drama, which is one of my least favorite kinds of story, whether it's on the screen or a book. You know, like like very Jane Austeny, Edith Wharton-y type narratives. Oh wow. I got I got that this is just a frame for character drama stuff. But for whatever reason, the style is like really hard for me to get into. Um, I mean, I'd say the movie is objectively great, but I think I might have respected it more so than I was fully engaged by it. The acting is, of course, exceptional. Lewis and Vicky Crapes are tremendous. Uh, the filmmaking is gorgeous. Uh, but this, I don't know, it might be my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. What, what do you think, Alex? I unfortunately think that that spot for me is still maybe punch drunk love. Um, I I have to agree with Jeff on that, but like this one, like what Jeff was saying earlier, there's a departure happening. I feel like with Paul Thomas Anderson's filmmaking, like we talked about this in the Fincher episode, right? We kind of split his works up into like these different chapters. Um, And I feel like Paul or Anderson has arrived at this, strange junction um where this film did not feel like one of his movies at all like you said i think saying i respected it more than i was engaged is like a perfect way to put it like i like daniel day lewis obviously in it like he was great and you're right vicky crepes was really good but like I don't know. The thing is is i love manners drama i love old english colonial uh. stuff like like you get into room with a view, anything made by Merchant Ivory, I'm super down for. Um, I love Jane Austen. I love the movies that they've made in their own way from them. Um, but no, this movie was was weird. Like <laughs> I don't know how else to say. It. it made me feel gross in a way. Like I didn't like the dive into the mind of this fashion designer and like i didn't like the indulgence in his i don't even know how to say it um 
mild Asperger's. Yeah, like <laughs> it, it just made me feel. Yeah, we'll weird. Just call it for what it is. Yeah, like <laughs> he's at least with Punch Drunk Love. I have some type of like relative connection to the character of Adam Sandler. Like there's something in moments in my life where I can like. Well, it's Adam Sandler. Sympathize <laughs> with him, right? But no, this one was just exceptionally distant from me yeah he was an alien to me definitely um very human you know he's definitely very human you see the you understand the vulnerability he has this this whole connection with his mother she even visits him as like an apparition at one point and the way that he he's so specific in everything that has to go in his life like like jeff said mild asperger's um and then the way that she ends up like entrapping him into needing her by like poisoning him so that he'll be like vulnerable i'd say it, it was definitely weird to jump into this one after inherent vice which was just like this crazy smorgasbord and then phantom <laughs> thread is so understated it's such a quiet understated movie and I, I think I was expecting it to explode somehow in a, in a much bigger way. I thought there would be like, I don't know, some revelation. And maybe that's just me being trained by by dumber movies, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you it's were like, waiting oh, for the other shoe to drop. Like, yeah, the other shoe to drop. And you're like, who, who has the dark secret here? Who has the dark revelation? And yeah, it turns out I nobody. I remember you saying like you were going to say like uh, we were like putting bets on who was going to crack first. Like was it going to be Alma, Vicky Crapes' character that like cracks and like poison. And when we thought that because she started poisoning him, we're like, oh, she's going to go too far and then poison him too much. And then he's going to die or is Dan Day-Lewis going to like boot her out of his life and like totally redo and like and become a failed dressmaker because he got rid of his muse because they call him in the synopsis in this movie they reference alma as his muse and i never really saw that read no i never really saw her as it's like the muse. opposite almost yeah she was almost his his detriment she was she almost holding him back she was somebody who wanted to be loved by this man because she loved his dresses and she was and she loved there's that great scene where I believe it's like the aunt that pays for everything in his life um, wants one of his dresses and she gets kind of just like sloshed and passes out inside of it. And Alma is like, earns Daniel, uh, earns Reynolds, his name's Reynolds Woodcock, earned Daniel Day Lewis's characters. What a name. I know, Reynolds. Daniel, so Daniel Day Lewis brought that name up as a joke when he read the script or something like that. And. Paul Thomas Anderson loved it so much he just kept it. Oh, he thought it he thought it added like a comedy element to it. <laughs> it's such a bad name. Uh but yeah, so you know, he created this like love for her because she respected his craft and loved that above anything else, just like he loves his craft above anything else and it kind of endeared her to him. And yeah, if I mean spoilers ahoy, I guess. Uh yep. the end of the film is quite strange it's not what we expected jeff and i had a number of of predictions that the ending could have been none of them were just oh they're in love in their weird weird way their weird unhealthy way yeah they just hit this i mean essentially she reveals that she has been poisoning him and he 
is fine with that, actually. And they have this cyclical relationship that works for them where periodically, without really saying anything, she'll just poison him and he will rely on her. Because she says early in the movie that the only times that he's vulnerable and open and loving and tender is when he's ill. And that's very reminiscent of Munchausen by proxy or Munchausen syndrome, where his mother doted on him and 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 kind of maybe like in, emphasized when he was sick or made it feel him feel intense when he was sick and uh, so Munchausen Jeff referenced Munchausen when we were watching it I didn't know what it meant so I thought he was talking about a composer <laughs> because the music is all classical music <laughs> uh, no I'm talking about a very serious psychological disorder <laughs> yeah. um, but it very much seems there's a mix of that like you have Daniel Day-Lewis who obviously his character has mild Asperger's and it's very apparent or some or something of the same he's on the spectrum in some way and he was doted on by a loving mother who passed away and he is without that in his life and he tries to get it from his sister who's very cold and distant and his aunt is kind of a lush so Alma becomes a surrogate mother for him. And that's kind of how their dynamic and their relationship eventually evolves to. This movie's very off-putting. And it's not, and it's not a Paul, I mean, it is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. This is a lifetime feature movie directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's just a very dry (laughs) psychological romance, but directed really well. Yeah, you get a lot of shots of people making dresses. There was there was one moment where Jeff and I nerded out where it has this like the slowest zoom you've ever seen and it has them talking to each other on a couch and in the foreground closer to the audience is like one of his immaculate dresses and it's slowly 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 zooms into them and it zooms past the dress and you're like, yeah. ah, filmmaking. <laughs> it's more about them now than it's yeah, about it was, the dress. It was, yeah, but it's things like it's fun to see those connections. But at the same time, <laughs> it was like those connections were so ripe for the taking. They were right there. He wasn't dangling anything unique or um, intricate in front of the audience. He was like, here's a romance story. I'm going to write this. So it's it's what I call his least Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I don't know. I think it is unique and intricate in the way that it plays out, but it is it is far less showy. It's there's almost no explosivity except for some of the moments when like Lewis loses his temper or sorry, Reynolds Woodcock <laughs> <Yeah>. loses his <laughs> temper. Um but yeah, it's it's probably his most understated film since Hard Eight and maybe even more understated than Hard Eight. I would say even yeah. more. It's just it's so tame compared to all his movies in every aspect, in writing, in character in just the grit of his general movies it's none of that this movie is very polished very clean yeah it's, almost it's like a it's like a fine dress yeah <laughs> like this elegant it this is. elegant lace work that it's um if you just messed with it a little bit could fall apart it's just so dainty well ddl like you know he puts on a great performance like he always does i really hope he does another movie at least because i just this is kind of in my opinion going out on a whimper hmm it's not it's not going out on There Will Be Blood, that's for sure. I can't be satisfied with this being the last yeah, one. Yeah, I can't. I need one more, like, 
incredible DDL performance, which is selfish. I mean, he's a, a human being who deserves to create yeah. as much characters as he wants. But I really want one more incredible DDL performance before he decides to retire. Because this one, it just it feels lackluster. Not in his performance, but just the movie itself didn't give me anything beyond what it was presenting. I was going to say, I feel like a, as well as living with Daniel Plainview, living with Reynolds Woodcock would not be a fun experience in any way, in its own painful way. Like, I'm talking about Daniel Day-Lewis's wife now, having to oh, deal with God. his method acting and shit. Like, I mean, did you think he even really needed to method for this character? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he I'm did. I'm sure he did, because that's who he is. But, like, it's just, like, this character, I mean... I don't know. It just doesn't seem like He probably that. apprenticed for like two years as a dressmaker. Yeah. Just, well, just isn't for he this. a cobbler? Isn't he a cobbler now or something? He does do that. He was a, he was at some point. I don't know what he's doing now, but there was a point where he was like, fuck acting. I'm going to live in Italy and make shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and that was not that long ago. So yeah, I don't know. Speaking of, speaking of performances though, I had an idea halfway through this movie that would have made, it the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Okay. Which is where you have the exact same movie, exact same shots, exact same style of performances, but instead of Vicky Crepes as the love interest, it's just John C. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> as himself or as an like, Anderson character? Same, like- the same lines, but I think I think I think he could give a John C. Riley performance with the same lines, you know. But I think I I don't think it matters. His names will be like Al. <laughs> I don't think well, it matters. No, Oma. no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it matters because just having John C. Riley, who's naturally funny, in this role with this with how buttoned down this movie is, would be so fucking hysterical. I think it would be great. It is also great today's John C. Riley because John C. Riley has morphed incredibly in his career you know going from uh, not not boogie nights um going from hard eight where he's like young kind of up and coming actor kind of juiced and they get ready to take on these dramatic roles till you know like his time on tim and eric as just Steve this Roll. like bonkers yes <laughs> bonkers fucking character and then his time with will ferrell you know like stepbrothers is probably i think i would say his most well-known performance to the general audience and uh and you know talladega nights all that stuff with will will ferrell so walk hard the dewey Cox story exactly. you have all of these he's built himself into this newer kind of john c Riley, not the same kind of person that hard eight was so it would be so that's who i would be seeing in that role is like oh yeah you know, like that john c Riley, like, that voice that he does I don't really know how to do it. Yeah, like kind of... Just go full John C. Riley with yeah. it. Yes. You know, oh he's got God. the hair from Tim and Eric where it's all like poofed yeah. out on the sides and like Paul Thomas up. Anderson, take note. Remake this movie. Seriously. Re edit this Lewis movie. Is, like, looking at him endearingly and it's just like reverse shot to John C. Riley. Like, oh, it's, it's crazy. Face. Yeah. So that's that's my that's my dream comedy version of Phantom Thread. <laughs> we should just try to pay John C. Riley and then film all those as pickup shots and then just edit it yes, together. Yeah, it'd be hard. It's a lot of shots with them together. It's true. Um Yeah. Yeah, so. I probably have the least to say about this one. Yeah, this is a very like it, it, it's almost a very anticlimactic ending. That's why I called this a mountain. Because the end of this is very like, okay, we're done. 
You know, it's we're at the bottom. We did it. Yeah, I wish I wish I loved it. Obviously, I mean, I wish I love everything I watch, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to what he does next. Uh, what's the Soggy the next bottom. one's called? Soggy Bottom. Yeah. I don't know Soggy what bottom. it's about. Do you guys? Know? I don't know if that's a working. It's going to be about um. That is that. It's going to be about a paste. It's going to be about a pastry chef in London. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's like, just soggy no. bottom. Soggy bottom is just fans of pastries. No, it's just a reference. It's the same to, movie. Yeah. With the Great pastries. British Baking yeah. Show, because like they always say, like soggy bottom. Like when you make pastries, you don't want to have a soggy yeah. bottom. <laughs> and so, like, I'm just thinking of that. Like, I'm just like spitballing. Do you think it's a reference to uh, the Coen Brothers movie? Um, Oh brother, where out yeah. there? Uh, where art thou? Because there's the soggy bottom band. boys. Yeah, the soggy bottom yeah. boys. By the way, In- oh brother, where out there? Where art thou? Yes, that's yes. the title. There you go. There we go. I pulled a Jeff there. <laughs> um, Fuck you. Beautiful, beautiful movie. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I love that film. That movie's so fucking yeah. funny. Yeah, I know it's being shot in Encino. This new movie, Soggy Bottom. So, new territory for Paul Thomas Anderson. The San Fernando Valley. (laughs) All right. uh, Oh, it's got to go back to L.A. every couple of movies. But, but I mean, yeah, as overall as a director, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but I really think that, to sum it up, Paul Thomas Anderson has really revolutionized this style of, of really intentional filmmaking, um, kind of revolutionizing multimedia shot processing you know and going from different elevations of shooting and and just really being so ambitious with his camera work i'm thinking of like i think it was boogie nights like the scene where the the camera goes into the pool with the Mm -hmm. girl and um there's just a lot of stuff that's just so innovative for its time and it's now i really think like steady cam is like such a normal tool to be used in filmmaking today and i really think pta kind of put that on the map mm. along with a few others. Interesting. Yeah, I I don't know enough about camera operation to say whether or not he revolutionized it at all. I don't um, think it's a revolution. I think he just really helped show what these kind of mediums can do as a multimedia type of art. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to point out is that he's taking these type of dynamic camera um uses and then blending them in a way that's very unique to his style gotcha i i I reference again the the opening shot of boogie nights yeah he's there's a reason he's in the conversation as one of the the best directors now or ever um and yeah it's it's his shooting style this really commanding mannered style that he has that and I love the I love those early look at me I'm the director shots. For other people that can be annoying, but for him because he's so good, you just nerd out with them. And the these narratives that he chooses, like we've said in our lofty way, is very literary uh-huh. most of the time, if not all the time. And his predisposition towards towards people who are left of center in terms of movie characters. Like there's like we've said before, I think in the last episode, you don't get stock characters. No, in a in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, no, nobody's stock. He likes weirdos. He likes broken people. <clears throat> he 
he's as adept at making the most serious movie ever as he is at being funny as hell and letting his actors just play and chew the scenery. Mm-hmm. And everything he does, even if it's not my favorite, I'm always in awe at his ability to make a film. Yeah. I, I think one of the, my favorite things about him is his his ability to carve out this role in the late 20th and early 21st century, you know, where it's still, I don't want to say it's like Tarantino's world and I don't want to say it's Scorsese's world or anything like that, but he came out swinging. Like he, if I want to make like a baseball analogy, he like was that kid in the lineup who might be towards the bottom but he just stepped up to the plate and he still exists in his own way now in this like powerful pantheon of director writers. Um, when mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino won an Oscar, I believe he referenced Paul Thomas Anderson. He's like, this one is for all the writers and the directors, you know? And he like listed off some people. Um, and Paul Thomas Anderson was one of them. And something about his films and filmmakers that I like kind of going off of what Jeff said, but in a different way. They're like torchbearers in this art of filmmaking. Almost like there's like this knack or this reference or this connection that I have with like the cradle of filmmaking, at least in the United States. We talk about, you know, like the cradle of civilization and things like that. And you have these great civilizations that take the torch of humanity on. And if we're going to take that metaphor to these films... Paul Thomas Anderson is a very apt and very superb torchbearer in the art of filmmaking. And it's cool to see him in this time presently doing his thing. And I'm excited to see who comes up next. You know, there are other directors that are coming up, but he is probably one of my favorites. And his movies speak to me more than Tarantino's do just because I'm not like a very brash and machismo, like bravado type of person. So Paul Thomas Anderson's films always hit me in the more like subtle complex areas of my heart than Tarantino did. But yeah, we spoke about last time how uh, like I likened him to Tarantino, not necessarily because they have the same style, but because their voice, like their DNA just shines through. And that's something you can't fake like trying to make your movie cool or whatever <laughs> it's 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 they're very natural directors like Paul Thomas Anderson like these movies are him just as much as a Tarantino movie is Tarantino it's it's just like if you cut this movie it'll bleed PTA's blood yeah. you know that kind of thing and yeah he's just accomplished brilliant guy uh, some of his movies I like more than others, but man, oh man, am I glad that he exists. Yeah. And I'm glad we did this 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 boot camp because it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It was heavy. It was, uh, it was an intense one, even though it was yeah, only I mean, eight movies. I hadn't seen 90% of these movies. <clears throat> I'd only really seen There Will Be Blood like in its fullness and looked at it in an adult eye. I'd seen Boogie Nights in a younger eye. When so. you were 11. <laughs> so this was a really just interesting delve for me um, in a, in a director. I had never really experienced an entire director's filmography all at once like this. It was a unique way to look at someone's style in a way that I don't think you get to see by just talking about their movies in a kind of incoherent order. So it was yeah. really just a fun thing to do and 
gave me a, a new favorite director. So I awesome. the, uh, I love the deep that. Delve. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. So who's next? We're going to do John Ford. <laughs> Shit. Oh, God. No one's next for a while. 100 and 137 <laughs> movies I know, right? starring John Wayne. Like the, well, those are just the movies he's <laughs> credited with. I'm sure that like... Right. J.J. Abrams. Oh, Zack no, Snyder. not doing that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Zack Snyder. Snyderverse. I think maybe... the bottom of the mountain. Maybe when Wes Anderson releases the next one, but... I think, yeah, I think, like, we're going to take a break from the spotlights for a while because it's just a lot. It's a lot to do. It's a lot more to watch eight movies or ten movies with Fincher than to watch just, like, watch a movie. I will say, too, so, Paul Thomas Anderson and Fincher's movies, they're not, like, even Wes Anderson. His movies are, like, relatively expedient and, like, quick to get through the story and whatnot. Uh, PTA and Fincher, it's... It's a small filmography if you look at it written down for both of them, but it's fucking big. It's comprehensive. It's a yeah. mountain, as Jeff says. It's a mountain. Yeah, we've uh, I've been likening this to a mountain the whole time. It's just like you, you know, the watching is the climb and then the talking about, and then you get to the summit of like there will be blood, and then you just kind of deescalate from there. And and now we're back. We're back down. We've passed. We've passed base camp. We're back home. Next episode, Alex has chosen a film called Paris, Texas from the 80s with uh, Harry Dean Stanton, the great and sexy Harry Dean Mm -hmm. Stanton. And that'll be next. And thank you guys for joining us, both the listeners and my co-hosts. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. This was a uh, really, really, really fun dive, and I appreciate everyone for hanging out and listening to us talk about one guy for roughly three hours (laughs) oh yeah probably even more um but yeah thank you everyone and we'll see you next time now our podcast is done and we have to run we know it is sad but we had so much fun don't be bereft jesse alex and jeff will be back real soon The real weirdos We talk about movies For way too goddamn long